Welcome to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast where you'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made more money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more, go to writeyourbookinaflash.com. The best day of your life is when you get a contract from a publisher who wants to publish your book. But it could also be the worst day of your life when you get that contract because it's written for one purpose only, to make the publisher a lot of money and to take away as many of your rights as possible. But how do you get those rights back? What can you negotiate with? A lot of authors are afraid to negotiate because they don't want to lose the contract. So today, you're going to learn what you can negotiate, what you shouldn't negotiate, and how to have the proper mindset about it all so you get the best possible deal. Hi, I'm Dan Janelle. I'm the author of more than a dozen books, including Write Your Book in a Flash. I'm a book strategist, and I can help you write your book as a ghostwriter, book coach, or developmental editor. Our special guest today is Ken Waksberger. He is the contract advisor for the National Writers Union and the number one international best-selling author and editor of You've Got the Time, How to Write and Publish That Book in You. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here because I remember when I got my first contract from John Wiley, I was so thrilled to get a contract. I didn't even know you could negotiate anything. And my agent, um, not to his credit, really didn't negotiate anything. <laughs> we just signed it, sealed it, sent it right off. And for the most part, we were happy with it. But when book two came along, there were some restrictive clauses in there that we didn't quite realize at first that uh, sort of tied up our hands in a little in, in some ways. But that's uh, that's nitpicking here. Uh, I don't think we need to get into it. But let's talk about some of the the things that you can negotiate, things that you can't negotiate and how to have the right mindset about this whole process. So I'm going to leave it to you. I might interrupt and ask questions every now and then. But. Ken, you have the floor. What do we need to know? Okay, okay. Well, uh, I, I wanted to start off by talking about some of the, the biggest mistakes that, that authors make. You know, all, contracts are so bad. Uh, they're so bad for academic, for authors, but especially really the academic press. Uh, I've been a, a contract advisor with the National Writers Union for over 30 years. And uh, way back when, uh, we had a we had a national co- uh, organizer, and she asked me to organize academic writers, and, and I was kind of thrown back by that. I didn't realize there was really such a thing as academic writers, but uh, I went about doing it. Uh, people in my union were actually opposed to the campaign because they they thought, "Oh, come on, academics don't care about their contracts." Uh, but I, you know, I I prefer to look for the facts. And uh, we did a campaign and we discovered there was a lot of interest. They just, there was just was ignorance. They didn't know about the contracts. And so, uh, uh, so one of the, one of the big mistakes that people make, uh, and these all, by the way, seem to revolve around the author's willingness or refusal 
to treat themselves with dignity. Uh, they don't even think about that. Uh, one of them is, is not being uh, willing to walk away from a bad contract uh, to set bottom line issues. You know, you negotiate, you get some, you don't get everything else. But there are certain issues that are so important, and it varies from writer to writer, but there are some issues that are so important that if the author, if the publisher isn't willing to give you those, you need to just say, well, forget it, I'm out of here. And uh, a lot of them aren't willing to do that. Uh, I think in the academic field, the um, there's a problem with the publisher parish treadmill. If you're an academic, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in order to get tenure, you have to publish a certain amount of times. Uh, but more specifically, you have to publish in certain pre-approved, I guess you'd say, uh, um, publishers, you know, certain imprints. And uh, these imprints, you know, they don't, they don't have really the, um, the incentive to give you a good contract because they know that you've got to publish with them. And, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, back when you were at the, the mercy of publishers, but nowadays with the new technology, we don't really need them anymore. We can publish ourselves and totally bypass them. But the issue is that um, there has to be a way to, uh, to to evaluate the books. In other words, you can't just, you know, that, that's the reason that, that, that uh, there was the, the uh, emphasis on having certain presses because we knew the presses were reputable. And there, there's legitimacy to that. They're reputable presses. If you're published with them, it probably is a hint that your book is reputable. And so that helps with the tenure. And, and that's legitimate. But there needs to be another way to determine if the book is reputable. Uh, it should not have to revolve around certain imprints. Uh, it's so easy to publish yourself. We should be encouraged to do that. But we need new ways to look at it. So so uh, not being willing to walk away from a bad contract uh, for fear of the publisher pep parish treadmill in particular, uh, I, th I think is, is one of the big mistakes. Uh, another one is signing a boilerplate contract. When the publisher says, we like your book, we want you to sign with us, they send you their contract. And it's called the boilerplate contract. It's the... Uh, it's the one they send to everybody. That's it's round to zero. That's where the negotiation begins uh, with that. But most, uh, too many, I would say, not most, too many authors don't realize that they're allowed to negotiate. I, I think you you mentioned that with your uh, your agent. Uh, it's either out of ignorance, or again out of fear that the publisher will dump you as soon as you ask for changes. Uh, you know, they're, they're scared to do anything. Publishers can't do that, though. They can't. Uh, for one thing, by the time they've sent you a contract, they've already put hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars into your book, mostly in the way of, of staff time, editor time. You know, people have to read the book. They have to talk about it with other people on staff, uh, you know, to decide if they want to keep your book versus another book. This all takes time and they're all getting paid for this. So by the time they say, yeah, this is a good book, uh, let's, let's go for it. They've already put that time into it. They can't just walk away. 
They can't just do that. Remember, they have to keep producing catalogs. Uh, you know, they're hoping your book will fill a, a, a blank in the catalog. And once they've filled it, they don't want to then unfill it and have to start all over again. So you've got you've got that power there, uh, and you need to, you need to be willing to take advantage of it. Uh, so they they're more than willing to make a few changes. Uh, you know, in in the in exchange for you not walking away. So so you got to keep that in mind. It's a mindset. We were talking about mindset. You got to be. You have to self hypnotize sometimes. You know, authors. Authors really are uh, too often have such low self-esteem when it comes to their books. So you got to convince yourself that you're you're worth more. You got to look in the mirror and say, "I am a writer. I am a writer." You know, self-hypnotize. Uh, it works. Believe it or not, put it on your tax form uh, under occupation writer. You know, you got to believe it yourself. Uh, but uh, but once you do that, uh, you know you you. Get more more power, more 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 courage. Uh, you know, with the academics, what I realized is that we're not teachers who write or writers who teach. Uh, you know, because uh, you know you you tend to think of yourself more as one than the other, and so the other one is is kind of like the minor part. But you have to convince yourself that you're a teacher and a writer, two different professions, two proud professions. And you need to be treated with dignity in both of them. So, so that's that's real important. That that's the mindset. And that um, can apply to consultants and coaches and speakers and business people oh, absolutely. as well. Right. Absolutely. Ken, Ken what yeah. that, that was brilliant in terms of uh, knowing that we have more power than we thought. Uh, I certainly didn't realize all the staff time, but you're right. They're they're invested in you now. You have some you have some power here. So what kinds of things, what kind of clauses can you ask for and reasonably expect them to move on without fear of damaging the relationship? Well, good question. Uh, one of them is uh, the copyright. Uh, I, I, I put that first. I, I, well, overall, I'm not going to uh, which is most important, which is least. There, it all, all depends on you pretty much. But copyright, I think, is, is up there. Uh, no matter who you are, uh, you, you never, you never want to give that away. Uh, you know, you want to hang on to that. Whatever, whatever the publisher wants to do with your book, they can do it while you still own the copyright. Okay, you're, you're leasing certain rights to them. You know, copyright is you, you see copyright as a pie, different pieces, and the pieces are the different clauses within the, the contract that you lease out. You know, if they want to turn your book into a hard, your, your manuscript into a hardcover, into a soft cover, into an audio book, into an ebook. If they want to turn it into a movie, they want to translate it. These are all different rights that are controlled by copyright. Uh, so you don't have to give them the copyright. You just have to allow them to use those clauses. Uh, I had one publisher said to me, Ken, it would just be so much more convenient <laughs> if you gave me the copyright. I thought that was brilliant. That was a good uh, a good line on the publisher's part. Uh, it, it, it kind of threw me back, but uh, but I hung in there uh, and, and kept the copyright in my name. Uh, but there's no reason. Now, the key is exploitation. 
I could, exploitation is a bad word. You don't want to be exploited. Uh, and, and I understand that. In, in, uh, in thinking of, of uh, contracts and, and rights, you want them to exploit them. What it means is they're using them actively. Uh, if, if your press has a, uh, an agent in Hollywood turning their books into movies, give them print rights. You know, you probably don't have somebody there. So if they're actively turning it into a movie, uh, go with it and, and give them their cut and you take the cut. It's something you would not have gotten otherwise. But if they have no interest uh, in turning your book into a movie, and of course, most academic presses aren't thinking of movies, uh, there's no reason to give them film rights. You don't have to do that. Just hang on to it. You know, if, if, if Hollywood comes to, to the press and says, hey, would you like to turn this book into a movie? That was nothing that the press did. It was the book that, that attracted the, the, uh, the, the Hollywood, not, not the press. So keep it in your name. Keep it in your name as, as long as you can. Um, and, and what you do, you make a change. Any change you make, uh, you want to initial it. So if you're going to, if there are certain rights, like say film rights, uh, that you want to retain, translation rights, whatever else, you just cross it out on the contract. Just cross it out and then initial it. You always have to initial the changes. Sometimes there are total clauses you want to get rid of. Uh, just exit out, but then put that initial in there so it, it makes it official. Yeah, if they if they have cha- uh, plans to monetize uh, the right, yeah, go for it. That's what you want them. That's what you hired them for. But if they don't, you know, you want to retain it. Uh, so that's that's copyright. That's one of the big ones. Um, one of my favorites, uh, it's the resale clause. Uh, what, what that means, every, every contract allows the author to purchase some middle, minimal amount of books at some modest discount for their own use. But often the the clause will say, but not for resale. It actually says that, but not for resale. Uh, and sometimes it says, uh, and if you do buy it at a discount, you lose the royalty that you would have gotten if someone else had bought it at a discount to resell, basically. This is a crazy clause. It's a stupid clause. It's so stupid that it actually hurts the publisher. Uh, and 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 remember the, the the contract is written by the publisher's lawyers, so for the lawyer to write a clause that's going to hurt a client, well, I I call this the drunk lawyer clause. Uh, it's just <laughs> so stupid. It's so stupid, so damaging. Yeah, but but the reason behind it is that when you as the author get done writing the book. You're no longer merely the author. You're still the author always. But now that the book is done and the book is out there, you're, you're a valuable member of the sales force. Uh, I mean, you have more invested in the book than anybody. So don't let the, the publishers tell you they put money into it. You've got the time, the sweat, the guts. It's your book. And you've put more money, more energy, more anything into it than they'll ever put into it. Uh, and it makes sense. That you want it to sell, and you want to you want to be able to do it. 
but it costs you money to promote a book. You know, for you to put up a website, for you to travel to conferences to sell the books, uh, this costs you a lot of money. If you're not making any money on the book itself, on the sales, you can't afford to do that. And if you can't afford to do that, that sales that the publisher loses also. Uh, the, 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 what, what, what I argue for, what I argue for is that you need to be, uh, the clause should allow you to buy the books at the best distributor discount, because now you're a distributor too. If distributors get 50% off to resell it, you should get 50% off to resell. Forget this, uh, not for resale. If it says not for resale, cross that off. Just cross it off and initial. If it says you're going to lose the royalty, remember that if other distributors, uh, Baker and Taylor, for instance, or you know any of the other distribution companies, if they buy the book at 50% off to resell, you don't lose the royalty. So there's no reason why uh, if you personally buy it to resell, you should lose the royalty. So, so it seems, Ken, that that would be an easy clause for most smart publishers to easily give in on. So you should ask for this. I remember in my contracts, there was there were clauses that said you can buy any number of books at X number of dollars. And I don't know, remember if that was related to the publisher's discount or whatever, or if it was their actual cost of printing the book at, say, 6 or $7, which would be right, way right. below any other kind of discount. So that'd be something else that you could ask for. But again, publishers are usually pretty happy to agree to. Um, well, this is this is a clause I think that is should be pretty easy to get. I mean, if a publisher, if a publisher doesn't understand that it's to their advantage, uh, let, let's put it this way. I published. Okay, I let's, edited, move, let's move on. Let's move go on. Ahead. Uh, okay. What, what, what other things can we reasonably. Okay. Well, better promotion of your books. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. I mean, I mean good luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, here's what you do. Okay. It's, it's known as the worst kept secret in the industry that, that publishers do not promote their own books. By the time your book comes out, there are already two or three catalogs ahead of you. Uh, they've lost interest in your book. Uh, and in most contracts, at least when academic circles are going to say that they don't, have, they don't really don't have anything for promotion in the book. But here's what you can do. And, and here again, there's no reason why publishers should say no to it. Most academic presses are nonprofit. They're tax deductible nonprofit organizations. That means that when people donate to them, they get a tax write off. So what you can do is say to the publisher, I want to be able to take advantage of your nonprofit status. Most of them are going to say, sure. I mean, once you explain it, they're going to say, sure, no problem. And then you go to your friends, your relatives, anybody else who's looking for an end of the year tax write-off and just tell them to donate to the press. But the key is what they need to do, and, and there's no reason, no reason why the publisher should say no to this. But uh, the key is you need to have them earmark the donation to the press and in particular to your book. They say this is a donation for Dan's book. Okay. The reason is because otherwise, if you, uh, if they just donate to the press, it's going to get incorporated into the general fund uh, and you're never going to see it. So, so make sure they earmark it for your book. And then what you do is just get to, you know, make contact with, with an editor 
you know, who's handling your book and just say, hey, when, you, when I get a donation, let me know. And they're more than happy to do that. They're more than happy to do that. I, I took with, with one of my books, uh, I, I got a lot of invitations to speak at conferences. And uh, the press said, great, happy to hear it, but they weren't willing to put any money into it. Uh, but what I did was I raised money. I raised a lot of money that enabled me to travel, to stay places. And uh, my friends got tax write-offs. I was happy to give them that gift of a tax write-off. So that, that's one uh, they, they should have no problem giving you. And another thing they should do on that same, uh, that, that same track is send you their press releases. You know, I mean, now some, some of us know how to write press releases, but most authors don't. They have no idea how to write a good press release. But the, the, but the press does. So get them to send you the press release. And then what you do is just tweak it to personalize it, to make it sh come from your website rather than the press's website and, and sell books through it. Uh, what happens when you sell the when they give you 50 percent is that they're no longer making 100 percent of the money, you know, minus the little royalties. They're only making 50 percent. But the difference is that when they were making 100 percent, it was 100 percent of no sales because you're not selling it. OK, if you don't have a good resale clause, if they give you the 50 percent discount, they're now only making 50 percent. But it's of something. Because you're making sales, it's worth it. Let me give you just one example. I was, uh, I edited a four-volume set of books for a company called Facts on Five. It was a, it's a, an, acad an academic press, okay? But uh, they understood. They, they understood that, that uh, the, the, the whole idea. They gave me fifty percent off. The four-volume set sold for hundred and forty dollars, okay, which is a lot of money. Uh, but I would walk into a library. I'd say, here's the book. Do you want to buy it? You know, the, the four books. It was four they'd say, sure. They'd give me a check for $140. I'd walk out. I'd send 70 to facts on file. That's $70 they wouldn't have otherwise. And meanwhile, I've got $70. Okay. So it was really nice. It was worth it to me. And it was free money to them. That's what you need to emphasize. Not that it's less than 100%. It's free money. They would not have had it. Their best sales force isn't going to be able to, to come up with some of the ways, places that you're going to go to. So there's no reason why they shouldn't want to do that. Ken, a lot of authors want to have control over their covers, but a lot of publishers want to have control over their covers too. What have you found works in this situation? Can you negotiate the cover rights? That's a tough one. Um, because they, they, like you said, they have the final say on it. Uh, you certainly can offer suggestions uh, there, there's a, a clause in the contract that, that will say that you can have input. Uh, that that's probably probably as good as you're going to get on that. that. You know, if they publish it, they're going to have the, uh, the the say. And I haven't been crazy about some of the public the the uh, covers that I had, but you, know, you just kind of go with it. Uh, yeah, in the case in the case of my uh, book, which you can see over here, over here. Um, yeah that the original one actually had a picture of a, a light bulb. And I said, light bulb means smart. It means idea. It doesn't mean fast. And so they came back and they put a lightning bolt on there. Like, okay. Oh, okay. So we, a we, little we different. They listened. Not, not what I would have put on the cover of a book. Uh -huh. but, um, 
you know, publishers sell lots of books. They know what works. They know what doesn't work. And there are a lot yeah. of considerations in terms of what works on Amazon. You know, I'm wondering if we could do like, you know, a rapid fire kind of back and forth uh, of, you know, what are some tips that people can do and, and negotiate for what, uh, what you should not even think about negotiating for without getting too deep into the weeds? Okay, well, I'll try not to go too deep. I mentioned a couple already. Uh, the out of print clause uh, is one that needs to be changed. Uh, in, in the old days, well, pretty much from the beginning of contracts, I think, uh, there's been some version of available for sale through normal retail and wholesale channels, something like, you know, some f- version of that. Uh, normal channels referred usually to bookstores uh, and available for sale meant primarily that you had it in you, the publisher, had it in your warehouse, uh, which has a physical address. Okay. Um, all of a sudden, we can now publish, you know, print on demand. So that means that when the when the warehouse is totally empty, and they get an order for your book, they just call up whatever company is printing their books out and says, say, I need one book, send it here. And and so the uh, the publisher, you know, the, the, the printing company, they, they print out the book, they send it. The publisher never sees it. You never see it. Uh, but it's another sale. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But what that means, though, is that according to the old contract that uh, says available for sale, uh, it's always going to be available. And so there will be no, so the out of print clause really translates into your book is never out of print. So this is not a, a, an easy one to change, but it needs to be changed. Uh, I, I would consider this a bottom line issue. And if they don't change it, I don't go with them. Uh, what you want to do is, is get some kind of, uh, make the factor the level of royalties that you, you you receive over a certain period of time. For instance, you can say the book will be the work will be deemed out of print if no royalty has been issued uh, in two successful successive uh, royalty periods. Uh, that's an example. And then you can say whereupon the rights are automatically re, uh, uh, granted are automatically uh, reverted to the author. Uh, cool. The reason the yeah. reason you want that is because they don't. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have to ask for it. And they may not tell you. Go ahead. What are you going to say? Yeah, cool. I've actually seen some contracts where instead of uh, if the book didn't reach a certain dollar amount of royalties, then the rights would revert back to the author as well. So say less than $100 or something like that. Uh, but let's let's talk about the issue of royalties itself. Can you negotiate the royalty fees that you are paid uh, in a contract or do they stand firm on that? Uh, that can go both ways. Uh, I, I've seen examples where, uh, you know, my authors who I was uh, advising, uh, they were able to get more royalties. And that's that's fantastic if they can do that. Often uh, often publishers uh, stand firm on that. You can't go anywhere. Some do, though. And it's certainly, it's certainly worth asking for. Uh, one, one line talking about the mindset. Uh, one one line that authors want to memorize is that seems a little low to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That seems a little low to me. Seems a little. No matter what they say, just seems a little low to me. That was one of the first 
bits of advice I got when I when I first became a contract advisor. Uh, that was way back when, and I've never forgotten that. Uh, and when I thanked the guy, he said, "Nah, someone else told me that." So it's so it's been in the National Writers Union uh, lore for many years. So uh, right. I'm glad we could pass that along to our yeah. List. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Do you have one or two more uh, quick clauses that we can negotiate on, and maybe one or two clauses that we just know that they're not going to give in on at all? Well, absolutely. One uh, uh, another uh, clause. If the manuscript gets rejected, you want to make sure that they present you with a clear list of the reasons why it was rejected and what you can do to fix it. Why is this important? You could be your book can be signed by an editor who loves it, loves the book, made sure it ran through the, the approval process. Uh, and so you sign on. Then all of a sudden, there's a lot of turnover in the industry. All of a sudden, the editor leaves. Another editor takes, uh, you know, comes in instead. And that editor isn't as crazy about your book. Okay? They just don't have the heart in it. It doesn't mean it's a bad book. It's just every editor has certain books that they're interested in. So mm -hmm. uh, they could easily you know, reject the book because they're not interested in it. And they'll, they'll give you some reason like, like um, uh, it, it just doesn't... Uh, it, it wasn't up to standards. You know, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, it's that's a generic way. Uh, but if they give you specifics, you know, and, and say, here's why we rejected it. If you do this, we'll accept it. You've got something you can work with. So it's real important to, to uh, get that kind of a clause uh, in, in the book, in the, in the contract. Uh, a real easy one to get rid of is the, the method of manuscript delivery, uh, you know, in the old days, it would say, uh, send us two double-spaced copies of your manuscript. Okay, that makes sense because they wanted to pass them around to multiple editors. And so you have two copies and, and then they wrote all their, their comments on the manuscript and sent it back to you. Well, nowadays, nobody, nobody edits off the of print. I'm not a complete book. You know, they, uh, they, they use electronic. So that means that you need to send them an electronic version. And that makes sense. But if they haven't erased that other clause about the, the prints, you know, I mean, the new contracts, in other words, will acknowledge the, uh, the, the sending it as an attachment. But they, they haven't all gotten rid of that clause that says you need to send it as a print. So just cross that out, initial it, and just keep the part about sending it electronically. That should be a real easy one. I've never, ever uh, known anybody to object to that. And in fact, if they object to it, that's a, a real key to me that this is a publisher that probably is not fit to handle your book if they can't even you know, edit the right way. Sure. Let me raise two options that were my contracts with Wiley years, years ago. One was the right of first refusal on my next book. I actually thought that was a great clause because it meant that they were interested in my next book. So we left that in. So you as the expert, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That was the, that was the next thing I was going to say. Actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, there are two that are, that are related. One, the one is the obligation to give them the first crack at your next book. That's like, if you go to a hospital and, and give birth to a child, uh, but the but the hospital says you have to come here without your next child also. 
Uh, to me, it, it's comparable to that. Once, once one book, you know, every contract should deal with just that con that book. Uh, I, I, you know, if they like your, it's nice that they want to look at it again, but they're not really saying we're interested. They're just saying don't go anywhere else. Uh, and and too often they saddle you with the same ad type of a contract. Uh, you know, I, I that's one that I cross out in initial and I don't look back. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and no, again, I've never seen anyone say, no, that has to stay in there. Uh, the, the other one, the, the one that's related to that is the obligation to do a second uh, edition, a revised edition. Uh, the, the, the reason this is a problem, there, there are two clauses in the contract uh, often. One is the escalating royalty clause, uh, which means that you're, you, you first get some low percentage of a royalty, like say 10%. But if the book sells 3,000, you go up to 12 and a half percent. If it sells another few thousand, you get 15%. That's called the escalating uh, royalty clause. Uh, and it's good to have that in there. So, you know, some of them are just flat 10% or whatever. So you want to get that in there. But uh, there's another clause too. And that's called the, the cumulative clause. You know, which means basically when you go from the first edition to the second edition, the sales that you've made so far in the first edition carry over. Uh, why is this a problem? Uh, you know, it could be because it's too easy for your book in the first edition to sell just enough to get up to that, that next uh, escalating rate. And then all of a sudden, poof, it goes into a second edition uh, and you start back at zero again. Uh, so you don't want that. So you want to make sure they keep the, uh, the cumulative, cumulative uh, clause in the escalating and the cumulative. Uh, you want to keep both of them in there for the second edition. Now, that said, if you don't want to do a second edition, you know, I, I cross that one off. Uh, if you are going to do a second edition, make sure they define when and how often. They can't just say, oh, another day, let's do another edition of your book, because it takes a lot of work, as you know, to, to do a second edition. Uh, you know, maybe you don't want to do it at all. Uh, you know, the one of, a couple of my books, all of my books, really, I've, you know, I've, I've uh, no, that's not true. One book I did. Uh, but uh, other books, you know, I had no dish, no desire to do a second edition. Just crossed it off, and, and they didn't care. They didn't I'm, care. I'm glad you brought that up, because that was the second clause that I was going to mention that uh -huh. was in my contract. I think they call it the co-accounting clause. It might be slightly different than what you mentioned. It might be the same okay. thing. I'm not quite sure. But they basically said, if your, book, if your first book doesn't earn out, we'll take any of the earnings from the second book and apply that to the deficit yeah, yeah. of the first book. <laughs> so, that may be related to what you're talking about. Fortunately, I, my book earned out, so it didn't come into effect. But I was kind of upset that my agent, who should have known about such things, should have crossed that one out because that one would have been a killer. Um, I I <laughs> had that in one of my books, another another four volume series. And uh, you know, if one fell low, but the other one made it, it would take it out of that one. And I I actually negotiated to get rid of that. Uh, I haven't looked at my contract in a while. I think I got rid of it. And I think they have not honored it. And I just, I, I wasn't very, uh, 
I wasn't very uh, wise as far as reviewing my royalty statements and and challenging them on that. But that is a good one to get rid of if you can. Ken, as we close up here, let me ask you one final question. Go ahead. Should you hire a literary attorney to look over your contracts, or is there enough material in this podcast and other sources online to help the average author negotiate a good contract? We always said in the National Writers Union that uh, although technically we're not lawyers, some of us are lawyers, but most of us uh, were not lawyers, but we knew so much about contracts as a group. You know, our contract uh, and grievance division, our grievance and contract division, it was called, uh, that chant that, you know, if you, uh, as a member of the union, you got free contract advice. That was a, a real perk of joining the union. And you know what? When they, they got advice from us, they didn't need a lawyer. In fact, a lot of lawyers came to us for advice. Uh, so uh, I, I would say join the union and get a contract advisor. That that would be the National Writers Union, nwu.org. Join the union and ask for a contract advisor. We had many members who joined just because they were looking at their first contract and they wanted uh, they wanted contract advice. So that's great. Yeah. That's great advice, Ken. And uh, one final word for me, I guess, is that you should never hire a regular attorney to look at a legal uh, look at a book contract because there are just so many things that are specific to the industry that only people who are well versed in all these clauses can really make an intelligent decision on. Absolutely, so, and 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 as you discovered, one other thing, as you discovered, just having an agent isn't good enough. The agent, remember, and this isn't a criticism of agent, it's just a reality. Agents are in it for the money. They can love your book, but if they don't think they can sell it, they're not gonna they're not gonna represent you. And if they do sell it, they're gonna negotiate the contracts that are gonna bring them money. They're not likely to necessarily think of of the copyright even. They may, hopefully, but it's, it doesn't save them any or make them any money. If you keep your copyrights, they're not going to think of that. Uh, so, so yeah, just having an, an agent is not enough. Good point. Thank you very much, Ken. And thanks everyone for listening. We have dozens and dozens of other videos here on this YouTube channel to help you write, market, and protect your book. So you can write your book in a flash. Thanks everyone for being here today. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Write Your Book in a Flash podcast with Dan Janelle the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. If you're ready to take your next step to write the book that can transform your business, I invite you to schedule a free, no-obligation consulting call with me by going to writeyourbookinaflash.com. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.